This is a KTF Press podcast. Grace makes no sense that you would extend forgiveness to someone who is not asking for it, and then that you would reconcile with someone when they do ask for it and pursue a relationship that is mended rather than one that is contentious and guarded. It would not surprise me at all if Judas had come back and asked for forgiveness, that Jesus would have welcomed him back in as a disciple. Welcome to Shake the Dust, Leaving Colonized Faith for the Kingdom of God. I'm Cy Hoekstra. I'm Jonathan Walton, and this is our season finale. Woot. We're going to be answering some listener questions and reflecting on some of the things we've learned this season. We'll also be telling you more about the podcast and KTF going forward, which is all really exciting. So stay tuned. This is going to be a great show. And remember, if you like what we do, go to ktfpress.com, become a paid subscriber. That gets you the weekly newsletter with curated media from us to help you in your discipleship and your political education. That gets you the bonus episodes of this podcast. There will be at least one of those per month uh, in between seasons three and four. Uh, it gets you the full archive of all the bonus episodes. Going back, you can get a, a nice little feed that you can put in your podcast player that has all of our regular and bonus episodes there, so you don't have to go anywhere else for them. Uh, it gets you the full archive of our newsletters. Everything else that's on the website supports everything we do. We could not do what we do without our subscribers, and we appreciate them so much. So if you can, go to ktfpress.com, become a paid subscriber. Okay, Jonathan, we're going we're gonna to dive right into this. Uh, we're going to start with what I, I think both of us would probably consider a bit of a softball, but it's a good warm up question. Uh, we talked about this in our newsletter uh, a little bit after this episode. We had an episode with Scott Hall where we talked about it was called White People Helping White People Leave Whiteness. And we had a, a listener write in with it with a very uh, simple but honest question. We very much appreciate honest questions, and uh, we think uh, they're important to answer, even if it's like kind of going back to basics for us. We think it's helpful for everyone to go back to basics whenever they can. And so here's the question, Jonathan. Why are we asking white people to leave whiteness when, as the question asker correctly assumed, we would not ask black people to leave blackness or other people to leave their identities? Why do we do that? Okay, so... This is one of those softball questions where it's really hard to answer because I have like 19 bats because I'm just not at that <laughs> in the same at the same door. Right. Um, and so I actually sent this question to Scott Hall. Um, I sent this question to other to just other white people trying to help people leave whiteness. And so I'm not going to answer like they would. I'm going to answer like I would. Um, yeah, because I, I do think the the answer from a black person or someone non-white is going to be different than the answer from somebody who is white. Um, at least uh, the first one, the, the let me stay in my world and not into your world yet answer. Um, and so I think this falls into one of the boxes of like this false equivocation where blackness and whiteness are the same um, and they are not. Um, and mm -hmm. so the, this also hangs out in the same space as the reverse racism conversation. Yeah. Or, and reverse racism does not exist. It is not a thing. And reverse racism, just for people who don't know, you're talking about when white people say, Oh, you're, you're being racist against me as a white person. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and so I think we love in our, you know, dominant culture to like say, to draw binaries and say things are the same when that, when they're actually not. And so, Blackness is downstream of whiteness. Blackness did not begin before whiteness. Blackness did not pick up a box and say, we're going to do this. There were ethnic identities, cultures, and formations of how people are to relate with themselves, the world, and one another, and God before whiteness. Um, whiteness was also not a thing. Um, it was made up, just like blackness is made up. The problem is... Uh, blackness is a response to whiteness. And so when, quote unquote, 
racially assigned white people downstream of 500 years of colonization and the formation of ethnic identity and all of that decide to leave whiteness. They are not leaving an identity. They are leaving a power hierarchy. Yeah. And so if you leave that power hierarchy and say, I'm no longer going to participate in this way of ordering the world, blackness may still exist. Asian Americanness may still exist. Why? Because we have to relate with the quote unquote power structures that exist in the world. So in the same way that white people might be able to leave whiteness and give up the hierarchical structures, because no one is going to do that at all times everywhere, blackness and other um, social identities downstream of a colonized identity would still have to be engaged with and exist, Um, which feels to me like a difficult, sucky place, but I don't know how that couldn't be true. And I'd be glad to talk more about it with people who have thought more about it than me. But the, the reason I can't or don't feel like I can leave blackness is because white people won't leave whiteness. Yeah. I, so it's really important to think about it in terms of history. And, and I, th- I think like right. to, to just kind of expand on something you, you said about how their, you know, whiteness didn't always exist. We mean that quite literally. You go back eight, nine hundred years. There is nobody in the world talking about a race of people called white. There is right. no concept of all the people from all the different ethnicities and languages and kingdoms and cultures of Northern and Western Europe, you know, existing as one big group called a race. And that race is white people. Nobody has that concept. Nobody has a concept of black people. Obviously people look at each other and see that they're different. They have, have different colors of skin, but that didn't put them in groups called races. Um, Mm -hmm. And, the only reason that we've made up groups called races was like Jonathan said, to create a hierarchy. That's why whiteness is created. Whiteness is created to, to make a group of people who is at the top of a hierarchy and put everyone else below them. And at the very bottom, you put this group of people called black and it was specifically to create colonial power, to create um, uh, power and economic and financial security for the people at the top for the white people and to you know do that by being able to subjugate everyone else who's lesser than you and therefore you can exploit them for um all of that security that I was just talking about. So uh the reason you have to leave whiteness and nobody else has to leave is because the the whiteness is the bad thing <laughs> which is different than saying white people are bad and it is very difficult for a lot of white people to hear that because uh, we so identify with the like we just we think of race in an abstract terms in in abstract terms and we just identify with that abstract thing called a race and we just think it's bad to insult a, a black person because of their race in general and not because we put their race at the bottom of a hierarchy. Yeah, and I also think there's a there's a few hurdles here. I think there's a very 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 strong pull from anyone on the upside of of a power structure to try to equivocate their position with the people downstream. So we see this happen with men. We see this happen with non-queer people. There would be no men's rights movement in the West right now if there was not a women's rights movement. There would not be people talking about like straight rights if there was not an, an LGBTQIA plus movement. There's a there's a separation that's happening that I would implore white folks and folks downstream of power upstream of power structures and white adjacent like passing to say, oh, the work that I have to do to leave this power structure, this power dynamic is actually me leaving this power structure. I may have emotional reactions about it and all of those things, but I am not leaving an identity that I have been given and gifted by God, I'm leaving a power structure that puts my social identity above other people. And that I think is like, God does not desire to destroy white people, but whiteness as Connie Anderson, a person on my multi-ethnic team would say is of hell. I wouldn't say that whiteness is an identity from God though. Right. No, I would not say that either. I, that's not what I meant. What I, what I mean to say, and I've tried to say this many times in different environments, and it's always kind of caught in a weird way, is because we have to, I, to reaffirm that white people are made in the image of God and that whiteness is 
of the devil. Yeah. The, the <laughs> like, and I, I, I feel like I see some people like short circuiting when we say that because we don't know how to separate whiteness from white people. Just like we don't know how to separate blackness from black people. Like they, they have been fused together so that I am my racial assignment. Yeah. When in reality, when God formed us in the womb, I love Psalm 139. When God knit us together, he did not say, this is a white person. But the person that is being knit in the womb, when they come out in the world, they're white. And God says, I made that person and I made that yeah. person good. Yeah. Right. And so God made white people good, but he did not make whiteness and had nothing to do with it. Yeah. And so similarly, God did not make blackness. Blackness is a response to whiteness and the power structures and engagements as we try to seek and find our own identity in a power structure where we can find some sort of social empowerment. But because of the historical context that we're talking about, the response to blackness has to be completely opposite because blackness was put at, by society at the bottom of a hierarchy. We have to say, no, putting them at the bottom is wrong. So you have to say things like black is beautiful. You have to have mm. black pride when you don't have to have white pride. <laughs> right? <laughs> right, 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 exactly. <laughs> but just, like people feel like a weird tension about that, right? Like, white people feel a weird right. tension about that. They're like, why can't I have pride in my bow? Oh, but wait a minute, the proud boys, they're not good. Um, right. <laughs> you know? right, and right. that's, that's why like you, you have to, you know, understand the, the history and the, the real world origins of these ideas. They're not just abstract notions that came out of nowhere. Yeah. And if I can I try, I feel like we're, we keep trying to, trying to say this succinctly. It's like, if I assert my blackness, I am asserting that I have value. If you assert your whiteness, I'm asserting dominance. Exactly. Yes. Like that's, yes, <laughs> literally what I was about to say. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 All right. Well, we talked for a long time about a softball. So let's get to, uh, <laughs> let's harder, get question, to a, harder questions. <laughs> I don't know about harder. Just, just not something that, that you and I, um, uh, kind of have logged away in our, in our <laughs> structure of how we think. Yeah, yeah. Go for it. So, uh, a listener wrote in about the episode that we had two weeks ago talking about pastors and why they're unprepared. And we talked about how pastors are, are expected to be kind of content experts on everything and just kind of the source of all knowledge for, for people. Mm. And you mentioned a time that you heard Tim Keller give a talk on kind of scripture and its relationship to climate change. And the first thing that he said in the talk was, I've never thought about this before I was asked to think about this. Right, and, right. So, and you said, well, why am I listening to this man talk about climate change and scripture? Yes. <laughs> Uh, yes, I did. But I think I think uh, Candace, the listener, brought up a, a good uh, nuancing point about this that I just wanted to play. So here we go. Hey, Jonathan, Sai. This is Candace. Uh, I guess the the comment or the thought I had was about how how pastors can't be content experts. And while I agree that like you shouldn't, as a pastor, feel the need to be a content expert in everything, and other platforms shouldn't invite pastors just because of their like authoritative position, I guess, to just comment on issues that they aren't grounded and familiar with. But at the same time, I feel strongly that like pastors should have a sense of their social and ethics and like they, they should have a, a way of thinking and responding to political questions and issues of our day. I just feel, especially with something like climate change, um, we all participate in this. And so like, it just feels important that we would all sort of have some kind of response to to questions about it or positions on it and I would like to know like leaders in the church and, and how they are thinking about it so I guess I'm just trying to say like it's okay to, I think in my mind I'm comfortable inviting or welcoming someone to think about an issue and respond to it even if they're not an expert in it so hope you guys are well and um, talk to you later thank you so much Candace um Candace, by the way, has written in with a couple of uh, items before that have ended up in our newsletter and gave us mm -hmm. uh, the original idea to have Mako on in season two to talk about abortion, which is, to this day, still our most listened to episode. So we very much appreciate Candace and her, <laughs> her subscription and, in, and engagement with what we do. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want to speak for you. I totally agree with what she said and just thought it was an important nuancing point to bring up. Um, mm -hmm. I definitely think that pastors should be teaching people how to think through things that they're grappling with faithfully and, you know, can even say their personal opinions on, you know, individual 
political and policy issues. I don't think pastors need to be as scared of that um, as they are if they're creating an environment where um, people can disagree well on those sorts of things within their church. I just think people have to be comfortable. Pastors have to be comfortable saying, here's how I think through this issue with the complete humility of being a total non-expert on the subject. Like you have to be a self-identified non-expert <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and actively, you know, tell people I'm not the person to ask about this when you're not the person to ask about this. You just need to be the complete opposite of the pastors who are going to give you the quote unquote biblical answer to every policy question out there that exists, which is what a lot of people try to do. And mm. I think it's important to bring up because it's like, this is related to what we try and do here with Shake the Dust and with KTF Press. Like we are not subject matter experts on everything that we talk about, which is why a lot of times we bring on people who are, or mm. we're very clear when we're not, like we're never going to tell you we have the definitive theological answer to anything really. Both because like doing that is usually something that you do if you're trying to amass some sort of control over how people think or who is in or out of some group, um, which is the way of the colonized faith we're trying to avoid. But also just, I think we think, or I think I won't speak for you that Jesus and scripture are much more about telling us what kind of people we are supposed to be becoming rather than giving us really specific answers to really contextual questions. So that's my rant, Jonathan, go for it. <laughs> no, no. I mean, so I, I also agree with everything Candace said, and I wish that I could go back and nuance that response. Well, that's because, what we're doing. Yeah, no, I, in the moment for everybody who doesn't get to yeah, listen yeah, to yeah. this one, only hears that. Um, but Tim Keller in that moment was not disqualifying himself from sharing, Um but what he was naming, like the limit of his expertise, right? Um, which I don't think he expounded upon in the talk as well as he could have. Um, because here's here's a pastoral question, I think. A pastoral question is, how should I be thinking about and engaging with people and this situation in the way that is in line with the way of Christ? To the best of your ability, please answer that question, right? The question is not what do you believe might be the case about, you know, the 55 million pieces of plastic that were not recycled last year? Like that's like, because that's, that's outside of like the set of um, it's like so far downstream of the value system that we hold as followers of Jesus, that if we're not in the weeds about it, we can give an answer that's really unhelpful for the environment and really unhelpful for folks or how we should order and steward our lives. And so something that I've been working on ever since I came on staff with InterVarsity and was leading justice movements and things like that was that issue of like, yes, I am engaged in fighting sex trafficking and labor exploitation. Yes, I'm pursuing the fight against climate change and against racial injustice. And I, and I want to do those things. And I am not um, an expert on mass incarceration and excluded prison pipeline. I am not an expert on the three garbage patches spinning out in the Pacific. I'm not yeah. an expert on educational inequity. But I do think, and I'm going to, I think this is where Candace would go if we were to like to chop it up. It's like, I should, as a follower of Jesus, leading other followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus have a cohesive framework for how I'm thinking through these things and taking personal relational systemic responsibility for the impact and the intentions that I have in the world when it comes to these big quote unquote issues that are actually micro like microcosm in my life. Um, so that I can tell other people how I do that. So I can be held accountable so I can learn so I can continue to grow blah, 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 blah. Cause we're all engaged in it. Like she said, we all contribute to a problem like climate change. So I need to have a cohesive response. And if I don't, I need to figure that out, not just as a pastor, but as a participant in a society that yeah. is using and disposing of resources at a rapid rate. Yeah. And I, I think this kind of way of thinking or, or like just the ability to acknowledge your own limits, I think helps a lot in mm -hmm. theological discernment and like discernment about the kinds of communities that you should be a part of and all this kind of stuff. Cause I, you know, it, it took me a while to get there, but it, it was really helpful to me when I was finally able to sort of concede to myself, like I'm no expert on ancient Greek 
or biblical history or whatever. I'm just listening to these other people who are. Yes. And they're arguing back and forth. And they both know way more than I ever will. And they totally disagree with each other. <laughs> mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. So like, what am I supposed to do as a person who's trying to figure out? And the, you know, so I, I have to have frameworks for looking at things like, you know, if you're going back and forth on say women in leadership <laughs> in a church, right? Like, I had to get to the point where I could say, you know what? Jesus tells me to look at the fruit of teachings and to test everything that's good. And I just, I don't, I don't see the the bad fruit of women teaching me stuff and the good fruit of only men teaching me things. Like I, it was quite the opposite. In fact, <laughs> mm-hmm. so like they're just, you have to have ways to think through stuff that you're not expert an expert in and, and then like move forward in the world. And I, I hope that we're doing that as best we can um, here for all of you listeners and readers. Do you have any other thoughts on that one or should I move on? Nope. Thanks again, Candace. Yes. Thank you so much, Candace. That was great. Okay, Jonathan. So I was having uh, a conversation with uh, a listener recently. Basically the topic of the conversation was why the episode with Dr. Maxine Davis that we did on intimate partner violence was so good. <laughs> like mm-hmm. what, what happened there to make that one so excellent. And I have some thoughts on it yeah, <laughs> that yeah. I wanted to share as, cause I, the more I talked through it with them, the more I, I thought through things that I kind of wish I would have said uh, on the show itself. And uh, I want to hear your response. So the conversation got me thinking about something I heard Brian Stevenson say uh, a few years ago, he, Brian Stevenson, for people who don't know, is a capital defense attorney, but he also has this organization called the Equal Justice Initiative that I, we've brought up before in the newsletter and other places uh, that does all kinds of really, really great racial justice work. He's a phenomenal speaker. If you've never heard him, you should go. I had the incredible privilege of having him as a professor in law school. And he's, he's he doesn't talk about this a ton in public, but he's a Christian. And he I heard him speak at uh, a, a seminary around here one time. And he said at one point that he felt like God was telling him that the idea of mercy is on trial in America. And he was supposed to be part of the defense. Excuse, by the way, how I sound. I'm sick again. This, you know, daughter who's in daycare. It is what it is. Um, so I think Dr. Davis's work kind of reflects a similar idea, meaning the stuff that she said about, you know, why does someone who commits acts of domestic violence, usually men, but not always, why do they do what they do? And how does it change? You know, that those are, those are her questions. Instead of asking, how do we just get the woman to leave and punish the man as much as possible? And, you know, she basically gets criticized for having effectively too much sympathy for perpetrators. <laughs> um, but she connects like our instinct to punish perpetrators to like our larger psychological need. She did this in the episode, like our lar- larger psychological need to separate ourselves from bad people and to put ourselves in a group of people who are justifiably not being punished because we are the good people, right? I'm not being punished. I didn't do what that person did. I'm good. They're bad. But so she said, you know, there's the point in the episode where she said, effectively, I have abused partners before and everybody needs to get used to saying that. Like we need to be used to saying that we are all, we have this tendency. A lot of people have done it, even if you're not committing physical violence against your partner. Like people act abusively, act into meaning in dehumanizing ways. And we need to um, be ready to admit that so that we can move forward in a better, healthier way on, on all the policy and everything else that we do in court and all that. So basically I think her perspective on this issue is the gospel period. (laughs) What I mean by that is I, I think there are a whole lot of people out there who are committed to like a general abstract idea that everyone has dignity and should be treated equally and given a fair shot right up until the point where they are no longer committed to that idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think what Dr. Davis and her work, like what, what she's exposing is uh, one of the places in which we, we do not extend those ideas as far as they should actually go, you know, where we stop believing in the fundamental humanity uh, of people because they've done something bad. But what she's saying is effectively like when she says I'm, I'm a perpetrator of abuse too. Like basically what she's saying is to get to peace, the road to peace is confession. 
right? Mm-hmm. It's like, is, is admitting that you're a sinner and saying we all need to, to move forward from that understanding. And we can't achieve real like shalom, real God's peace without doing that. I just want to hear your thoughts to all that because this this was just part of I don't know I at the end of this episode at the end of that episode Jonathan and I both I can't remember exactly what we said but we were just both like oh man and Doctor Davis goes what like what did I do like she didn't <laughs> she thought she did something oh, yeah. wrong and we were yeah. both like no that was so good <laughs> so I just wanted to think about more of why we were so excited about that conversation that was on a pretty difficult um, subject and uh, let, let me hear your thoughts yeah. So, I mean, I think I've said this before. I, re- I wrote an essay one time, like, like Jesus washed Judas's feet. Jesus did not, like, pull out his little hidden sword, too, like Peter did, and go at all the Romans. Like, he didn't do that. And I think, I think we enter into our, our humanity when we confess. And I think we do something divinely inspired when we forgive, because Jesus did that. And... This is the practical outworkings of Romans 3.23 when it's like all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then the hymn says like we're all equal at the foot of the cross. Like If we believe that, then this is that outworking. That when someone is violent towards me, I forgive. And when I am violent towards someone else, I humbly ask for forgiveness. Like grace makes no sense that you would extend forgiveness to someone who is not asking for it, and then that you would reconcile with someone when they do ask for it and pursue a relationship that is mended rather than one that is contentious and guarded. It would not surprise me at all if Judas had come back and asked for forgiveness that Jesus would have welcomed him back in as a disciple. There's no doubt in my mind he would have done that. Huh. I can't say I ever thought about that before, but yeah. Right? Like, he's Peter sold Jesus out and said, I don't know you. Yeah. And Jesus was like, hey, you're still going to be the rock on which I'm going to build my church. Paul, you know, before that, Saul, Jesus literally said, why do you persecute me? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) You know, (laughs) like, there's there's something, you know, I think... just incredibly human about confessing confession and then entering into a divine work when we when we extend forgiveness to people who have harmed us or harmed our people or have impacted us in ways that are violating the um god's intentions for humanity and for our for us in this world and i think we should be clear since we were talking about domestic violence just a second ago when we say forgiveness we oh. do not we do not mean go back to a perpetrator and like do nothing about like maintaining your own safety or any of that stuff. You can forgive someone from an undisclosed location. Yes. Yes. And, and, and for all the black folks that are listening, I'm not saying black folks need to forgive all white people for all these things. And like, there's no accountability and no system structures. And there's just a hug in a courtroom. and Everybody walks away. Like that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the extension of God's grace as it has been extended to us as a holy act uh, to relieve the desire and goal of revenge and retribution. Like that is, that's what I'm talking about. Um, It is not cheap. uh, And it, and it, and it includes repentance where we actually turn towards something different. Um, where reconciliation becomes becomes possible, meaning turn toward a whole different system, like a whole different way yeah, of operating, an entirely different way of operating in the world, such yeah. that like mm-hmm. real peace can actually happen. Meaning mm-hmm. the end goal is still create peace and right. like do not let people behave in ways that harm other people. But I, right. I just I think it's it's important to say this too. Like this is such a concrete example of why we talk about centering and elevating marginalized voices because I like, I don't know how many white people know this, that like, like Dr. Davis said on the episode, you know, the white feminist response to the domestic violence crisis was prison. Lock a bunch of people up, do, you know, Mm -hmm. get, get the, get more police involvement, uh, uh, make police involvement more friendly toward And like she said, from the beginning, black women have said, no, that's not going to work. That's not the way we need to go with this. We have to do something else. 
um, we have to do things that actually create change in our communities because the, th- those systems of criminal punishment and everything else um, are completely destroying our communities like as a whole. They hurt us too. They don't just hurt the perpetrators mm. and like our interactions with the police are not good. And you know, that all, all that stuff, you know, and then and because kind of the, the white feminist response was to go hard on the criminal justice system. That's just kind of expanding the people who we judge, right? Yeah. It's right, like expand right. it's expanding the type of people to whom we like deny the gospel for via the criminal justice system. Focusing on the perspectives of the people for whom the existing systems don't work is what's going to get you closer to the gospel mm-hmm. every time. Specifically because the systems don't work for those people, you are going right. to end up at uh, something that treats people who are in, uh, uh, not treated like humans, like humans with dignity and respect and all that kind of thing. Um, I guess just what I'm saying is if the existing earthly systems are working for you, then you are just way less likely to look for something else. <laughs> this is true. It's kind of like what we said before. Like, uh, I think it was in the last episode about how like, yeah, it was in the last episode. If something doesn't affect you, you don't think about it that much, right? It's the same thing. If something doesn't, <laughs> if something works for you, you're not going to think about changing it that much. So the kingdom of God, like, coming in and transforming the world becomes less interesting to you in the area of criminal justice because the criminal justice system you've you have shaped it to work for you to a certain degree there are a ton of nuances to this there are lots of ways that the police treat domestic violence victims horribly and you know i'm I'm not i'm I'm speaking in broad terms right now so anyways it, it like it used to confuse me a lot is what i'm saying when i was when i was a kid and and i would look at things like you know, Jesus talking about the or it being harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, or talking about you know the poor being blessed and like why he spent so much time with the marginalized and why the marginalized were so attracted to him, and it just makes more sense to me now. <laughs> that's all. That's all I'm saying. The gospel makes more sense when you look at it uh, from marginalized perspectives. Yes. Amen. That's and just kind of a bigger picture thing. That's my that's what I, I hope to have happen when people listen to and engage in conversations like this is that it should push us further towards love, it should push us further towards kindness, it should push us further towards a Christ like inclusivity. Um, and I think we have to push back against the quote unquote slippery slope arguments of evangelicalism and Catholicism and institutionalized colonized faith. You have to push back against like, we have to protect orthodoxy and like all these things because none of those things were around when Jesus was gathering people. And if they were around, he actually pushed back against them, i.e. the religious structures that were aligned with political structures and social powers of the day to say, you're leaving people out. Like you're leaving people out of this kingdom that I've created and called for and I'm, and I'm going to die and rise for it and come back to to bring in full. And you're putting unnecessary burdens on people and yeah. focusing on legal minutia in, and not matters of justice. <laughs> and how well does that fit <laughs> into what we're talking about? Yeah. I mean, I was going to say like, oh, Matthew 18, Matthew 19. Actually, just the, the entire gospel of Matthew. Just yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, my hope is that anyone listening to this podcast and our work and things like that would would actually see and engage with God as more loving, more kind, more just, more beautiful, and has this Christ-like inclusivity that we are so bent against the majority of the time. Let's switch gears a little bit to something lighter before we end. Mm-hmm. Uh we were both talking to a subscriber recently. He thought it would be interesting if we talked about how it was that you and I went about finding our current churches. Mm. Do, mm. do you want to talk about that? You want to talk about new life? Yeah. yeah. So um, I, I think, you know, I'll preface this, this question with like, we all at different ages and stages of life need different things. Um, when it comes to our spiritual life. And so the church that was right for me when I was 18 is not the same church for me or may not be the same church for me when I'm 38, 37, you know, with two kids and stuff like that. Um, so I'll just, I'll just caveat that the, one of the, the core things in new life fellowship in Queens, Elmhurst Queens, 
was the church, the kind of quote unquote mother church, and then the church plant that I'm a part of now um, in Hempstead, Long Island, in Nassau County, um, was to grow, connect, and serve. And I think a healthy church is you're able to do all three of those things. Um, where you're able to be poured into, you're able to to serve other people, and you're able to um, grow in love for God, your neighbor, His Word, and every people and person of like all race and ethnicity and background, right? And so often, I think there are churches where there are you, you're really just going in to serve. The majority of the people there are just running, 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 and moving. They're not really connecting with each other as best they possibly could, or they're churches that are just about connecting and like there is not really a lot of service to one another or the community happening. Um, but I think my hope would be that all three of those things are happening. And the church that we left um, was just not oriented towards the community. And we left because Hurricane Sandy happened um, and there just wasn't a cohesive response to even people in the congregation. Um, and that was, I, I think for me at my level of maturity and, uh, engagement, I was just like, I am, I am done. Um, and at the same time, there were some very real needs for me and Priscilla in our marriage. And so that's how we ended up at New Life because there was a strong multi-ethnic focus. There was a strong understanding of justice and equity at the church. And so- And emotional health I, and relationships. And, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, and emotional health and relationships because that's initially the door that we we went through. And I and I will say that the- the the uh, the kind of crux question that really helped me was, um, would I invite my children into this church? And would I invite people I really care about to this place? And if the answer is no, then why am I there? Yeah. Like, and and I think um, that was the kind of like, I need a better phrase than straw that broke the camel's back because camel or camel's black back shouldn't be broken. Um, but like something, <laughs> yeah. That was the thing that pushed us over the edge um, to say, okay, we're we're leaving. So hang on, hang on. A camel's back can't be broken, but you can be hurled over a ledge. Oh, yeah. Push me. Yeah, that's true. I was trying to think of a phrase that wasn't violent. Because <laughs> like, they were all like, like linchpin, saw the brother camel's back, like yeah. uh, pushing over the edge. Like that was the, the situation that helped me make a choice. Is the most, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it was the the intense thing that's finally it was the last straw. It was the last straw, but what's wrong with the last straw? Anyway, it's just the last straw. Nobody, nothing's wrong with that straw. I just got picked last. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, all that to say, uh, I think that at this age and stage of life, I do think the evangelistic. And witness question is the most important. Like, is this a community that I can invite anybody to and feel like they will get a a slice of what the kingdom of God looks like in a way that is true and kind to them wherever they are? This is race, background, sexual orientation, like all the isms. Like if they sit in a Bible study with us, if they sit in a Sunday service with us, if they go and have food with us, Will they get a picture of Jesus? And the answer is yes. Um, and if I think that the answer, if sitting in a congregation where the answer is not that, we either need to decide if we're going to work towards that or leave. Um, and I think that um, in today's, you know, way of orienting ourselves around faith in the world, I think we we need to free more people to leave yep. um, than to to kick it, to, to push back against system structures that are inherently oriented against the thing that we're actually hoping for. I, yeah. I, I, people do need more, be more comfortable with leaving because what you just said was feels like such a high bar, which is sad, but there are so mm -hmm. many churches that, that absolutely do not clear that bar. And right. there are so many people who feel that really acutely. I would not bring people like I'm here kind of because I feel like I have to, or there's something that I'm getting out of it, but I wouldn't like actually bring anybody else here, you know? <laughs> right. I, right. Right. That is so common. And people feel like there's nothing better out there. And like in some places there, there might not be, but mm -hmm. um, you can be free and faithful at the same time. Like you can be happy in yeah. the community and still, you know, cause I think a lot of people are concerned about faithfulness. 
they're concerned about, I have to be here because this is the one that has the correct beliefs or the, you know, whatever. Right. This is the one that's truly faithful. These are the real people. And, but like I, you, you can look and, and say, if there's, if there's something going on here that causes me to not want to bring anybody else here because they will not find Jesus, then that's, that's not the faithful people. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, mine was my wife and I left um, a church that we've been at for a long time after the pandemic. Um, it, it ended up consolidating. Our pastor left to consolidate with another church, and it was just a kind of natural off ramp. Um, the place we're at now uh, is actually, I didn't say this on the episode, it's, it's the church that Pastor Jose Humphreys founded. He's not there anymore, but. Um, uh, and it's, you know, we were, we were looking for a place that was able to basically take marginalized perspectives perspective seriously and disagree well um we they have people who are on leadership there who have uh, uh opposing views on i think what people would consider lightning rod subjects and mm-hmm. that's okay at this church which is again sadly kind of rare but um it's a small church that has that has a bunch of pastors, even though it's small because all the pastors are bivocational. So meaning what we talked about last time, they are not just pastors. Um, they have full-time jobs and they are pastors in their spare time effectively. And, um, you know, so they have like kind of real world experience, which is not to say I don't, you know, I'm not dismissing any pastor who's, who's only existed in the Christian world, but, uh, there's something very beneficial to having been, uh, outside that world in a, in a real way. Um, right. You know, they're very honest and straightforward about what their capabilities are. And they're not trying to like sell themselves really hard to people. Um, and, and like, they're not inviting people into church programming. They're really inviting people into what pastor Jose talked about on this, this show, you know, a group of people basically serving their neighborhood as best they can, as opposed to trying to be like a flagship place that sucks people into it. <laughs> You know, there there are some hard things about being in a small church with a small kid, um, uh, and, and some other issues like that. But they're they're totally fine with admitting those things and and talking about them, and and I really appreciate that. So I I just appreciate the non-performative authenticity, the real like, hey, we don't have the capacity for that. If someone can do it, then go for it. But we can't. And yeah, exactly. I, you know, I I think I talked about this on the show one time, but the first time I met with one of the pastors, she told me that. Pastor Jose had specifically asked her uh, if there was any way that like they could uh, like accommodate me, basically, if there's anything they could do to make things more accessible for me. And I kind of froze and she went, yeah, I know. I don't want to put that on you or whatever. And I was like, no, no, I'm freezing because no pastor has ever asked me that question before. <laughs> like mm-hmm. literally not once. And I don't, yeah. so I don't know how to respond. Yeah. Uh, and I need a minute to think about this. And, and it, it, more stuff like that has happened. Like that, that past pressure, Wendy one time, like had an activity at a, at a church meeting that was, that she didn't realize or didn't think about ahead of time was inaccessible. And she like texted me later to apologize and be like, I'm going to try and do better next time. And I was like, wow. <laughs> Again, it's one of those things that makes you realize how low your bars are um, as, a, as a disabled person. So yeah, that's it for me. Any other thoughts on that, Jonathan? I, th- I think the only thing that I would say is that like none of these things are easy or simple Yeah. Um, when we're talking about who we're going to be in relationship with and like all those things. Um, and I would also say that like it's okay to leave a community um, and try to pursue and create something new. And I think we have to resist the temptation of comparing it to what we came to or what we came from and what we're used to. Um, so for example, uh, my first few years out of college, I was constantly trying to recreate what happened when I was in college. I was yeah. trying to find a group of people, gather around scripture and like redo these things that we fought sex trafficking and slavery we helped feed the homeless we are unhoused people like we built a maternity ward in a hospital we sent a group to uganda like those things we were able to do because we were in college we all lived in community (laughs) called dorms we all had resources provided for us there were entire systems and structures set up for us to literally argue about what it would look like to do an event with world leaders multiple times a year 
Um, yep. That context does not exist for the majority of the world. And so I had to resist the temptation to compare that. So you might be listening to this and you're not in New York City or in a place that's really racially or ethnically diverse at all. And or you're sitting in a congregation that um, if they knew you were listening to this podcast would ask questions about your faithfulness to Jesus. And like mm-hmm. um, there's there, there's that that's real. And so I think what I would want to invite us into is that place where the disciples were when Jesus first showed up and he said, come and follow me. He didn't have a probably didn't have a regular location where Jesus's small group met he probably didn't have a spreadsheet where people were figuring out who's going to bring food and all that stuff. He probably <laughs> didn't have like, you know, the email address and the QR code set up for you to get the right stuff. But they came because they wanted to know more about Jesus. And they didn't judge people who came later than them. They probably did, but Jesus didn't judge them for coming later. Um, <laughs> he didn't like, you know, like I, I think we have to move away from, you know, I will have the cookie cutter thing that I'm ordering on the spiritual menu for me to grow in this age and stage of life. And to say, I'm going to pursue this value of community and following Jesus because that is what he calls us to. And I know it's going to be messy and I know it's going to be hard, but I'm going to lean into Jesus and lean into the complexity and do the best that I can because I can't fall out of the kingdom. Like I'm not going to get kicked out because I'm not at church or didn't get you know, communion at this time. Like I can't, I can't get kicked out of a relationship with Jesus. He wants me. Um, And so would you pursue community as it, as how it looks in the messiness and all those things, not comparing it to what you had before um, in this next season of life? Um, Because it is turbulent for many people for many different reasons, but Jesus is with us and he will send people. Um, I think we just have to keep, we have to keep walking towards him in that way. Yep. And I think implicit in what you said is uh, there are a lot of people out there who, for whatever reason, don't feel like they can go to church right now. Don't feel like they can participate in X, Y, and Z things because it's they have too much baggage with it or there's stuff they need to work through or or whatever. And part of what you just said was, that's okay. <laughs> that's, yeah. That, does, that doesn't disqualify you. That doesn't mean it'll never happen again in the future. It's it's not like mm-hmm. we we do not judge people for that. And I don't like, we Mm -hmm. think community is incredibly important and we think finding a good place where you can go and have that community is incredibly important. But, Mm -hmm. uh, the question of timing is never one that humans, he seemed to have a good grasp on. (laughs) It's like, yeah. And you know what you want even more, even more than that side, (laughs) even more than that. Like Jesus came to show people lots of things. But one of the things I think he came to show people was that you might not be at the temple, but that does not mean you're not part of the church. Yeah. Like going to the man sitting by the pool, going to uh, this the story in scripture where there's a man sitting by the pool trying to get into the water so that he can be quote unquote healed when the water, when the spring essentially moves. Um, and he sits there for decades and Jesus comes to him. I think there's there's a holy noticing that happens when Jesus shows up that his kingdom is actually for all of these people on the outside. The woman at the well, she's not allowed to worship, quote unquote, and where the true Jews worship, right? There's God is saying like, you might be in your room. You might be getting lunch with the same two people at a coffee shop. Just like that can be where Jesus comes. Uh, it does, It literally does not have to be at a Sunday morning gathering, sitting in rows and straight lines with other groups of people oriented towards one person teaching. It doesn't have to be like that. And I think we have to be okay with that complexity. I'm not saying don't go to church for the pastors that are listening. Don't go to church. Don't <laughs> give. Don't be involved. That's not what I'm saying either. Right? <laughs> because there may be people who are at that age and stage of life and spiritual development where they can do that. But I think we, we have to make space for all kinds. Um, I, I think we, we have to we have to push beyond um, what we see on Sunday morning as the end all be all. Um, because what is happening on Sunday morning in so many places is not of God. And that's really sad. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean God is not moving and calling people to himself on Sundays and any other days of the week. 
The thing I just keep thinking of is just the parable of the 99 sheep, right? Like effectively what you're saying, when you're saying we need to be comfortable with like Sunday morning not being the be all and end all, what we need to be comfortable with is what God says the kingdom of God is like in that parable, which is the shepherd going after mm-hmm. the one sheep that is missing, even while all the, all the other sheep have come home and are safely in the pen. That is who God has fundamentally told us he is. And so we need to believe that. Right. <laughs> I think that's a good place to end. Jonathan, tell mm-hmm. uh, people what they can expect from, from KTF press going forward. Yeah. Again, like we said at the beginning, please, please, please subscribe, like, follow, share with lots of folks because the monthly bonus episodes are coming out um, between now and when season four starts for our paid subscribers. So go to ktfpress.com to get on our newsletter, um, to sign up and subscribe and support everything that we do. Those episodes are always, always really great. Um, You'll also be seeing a bit more regular writing from us that isn't just our newsletter. So that's at least one article per month, if not more, because there's a lot of stuff happening in the world. I don't know if y'all noticed that. So hopefully we'll be writing more. <laughs> um, and these are personal essays, political and social commentary that we occasionally write. And, you know, sometimes a poem by me because I like that too. Um, you're also going to be seeing new and different social media content from us. So please do follow KTF Press on Instagram, Facebook, Threads, and Twitter. For all those of you uh, who are looking for that, just do at KTF Press and our beautiful, cool new logo designed by Robin Burgess, will come up. Next year on the show, we will be getting back to our roots since it's going to be an election season in the U.S. And Lord have mercy, Jesus, you better believe we'll be all over that. So stay tuned. (laughs) Thank you all so much. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, subscribers. We've said it a million times, but I can't stop saying it. We would not exist without you. We so appreciate the subscribers that we have. Uh, our theme song is Citizens by John Guerra. Our podcast art is by Robin Burgess. For all of you who are subscribers, we'll see you in a month. For everybody else, we will see you for season four. And I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that I would call whiteness an identity given to us by God. I would just. Oh call no, it I didn't. I, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I did not say whiteness was an identity given. What by did God. you just I mean, do? I I moved my hands. I was like, no, I did not mean to say whiteness was an identity given by God. That's not what I meant. Because uh, no, that could not be a blooper. No, that is a blooper. That's that's like when you fell. On that bonus episode that one time. and Oh, yes. Ripped my entire <laughs> desktop off the table. <laughs> <laughs> That's our best blue ever. Listen, if there's any yeah. reason to go, go become a subscriber, it's just to hear Jonathan fall in hard. real time. Like in real time.